0: So tonight I'd like to talk about art, science, and the meditative journey. Recently, read an article about the Russian painter Wassily Kandinsky, who lived from about the middle of the 1800s to the middle of the 1900s, and he was credited with being. Uh, The first painter to paint uh, purely abstract art. As I read this article, I was struck by the similarities between his development as an artist and the unfolding path of insight that we undergo as we practice meditation. In a very real way, We're all artists, and we're creating our lives on the canvas of the world, and if we do it knowingly, if we do it with awareness, then we can express with our lives the same creativity that the artist does with paint or with music or with words. So, the first step in both the journeys of an artist and of a meditator, of a yogi, is developing a heightened awareness of the present moment. And for Kandinsky, this seemed to happen quite naturally. There was quite a striking story told of him as a young boy. When he was about 13, and just out of his allowance, he bought himself a box of paints, and he later described the experience he had when he first opened those tubes of paint. He experienced each color so vividly that he said his whole being, with each color, was filled with this most intense emotion. So this is quoting from the article and from his words. One squeeze of the fingers, and out came these strange beings, which one calls colors, exultant, solemn, brooding, dreamy, self-absorbed, deeply serious, exuberant, with a sigh of release, with a deep sound, uh, with a deep sound of mourning, of the de- of defiant power of devotion. And this is all just from squeezing some color, in know, paint out of some tubes. He was so sensitized, you know, in some way, his artistic sensibility was so refined that the color itself had this tremendous impact on his being in a somewhat similar <clears throat> although perhaps slightly less intense way being on retreat when we settle into the silence you know, both the outer silence of this environment and increasingly an inner silence in our minds as we're not so caught up you know, in the rush of continual thoughts and fantasies and images, we begin to experience some of this same sensitivity. Now, all our different senses on retreat seem to be heightened. And you've probably had this experience to some extent. We become much more sensitized to colors and to sounds. You know, the nuances of tastes, the patterns of light on the trees, things that in our daily life we might pass by without any notice at all. But in the silence of a retreat and the increasing silence of our minds, these sense impressions have an increasingly powerful impact. Now, as the great writer Marcel Proust said, The very real voyage of discovery consists not in seeing new landscapes, but in having new eyes. Same old landscape when, as Huxley said, the doors of perception are cleansed. We just see things in a completely new way. So one of the simplest ways to nurture this openness and sensitivity, and a very helpful thing to do on retreat, is by slowing down. Usually in our lives, and especially in this culture, we're so busy rushing from one activity to another. We rarely take time to settle back into the moment and fully experience, fully open to what's presenting itself to us. Now, in our usual daily lives, do we take the time to really see and to really hear and taste and smell and feel the wind on our skin or the warmth of the sun? This is one of the beauties of the retreat that we can take the time to do it, but we have to practice, in a way, and consciously, consciously practice this slowing down, this settling back. The artist Georgia O'Keeffe, expressed it so well, she said, to really see takes time, like to have a friend takes time. So in a way, we are allowing ourselves to make friends with our experience in a very intimate way. So one important mindfulness practice (coughs) while you're here is to slow down. Now, this doesn't mean holding yourself back, and it doesn't mean getting tight or tense in it. And it doesn't mean necessarily that you're always creeping along. It's just relaxing back with ease into the present moment. And then, particularly, noticing those times when we feel, when we have the feeling of rushing. That's a common feeling. And I think we're all familiar with that. So to be aware when we go from the settled backness to that sense of rushing, and to feel then, what is it like? What does it feel like in the mind? What does it feel like in the body? Now, when we're rushing, It's that feeling or sense of energetically toppling forward. We're a little bit ahead of ourselves. We're toppling forward into doing the next activity, taking the next step. We can even be rushing that anticipating or toppling forward, waiting for the next breath. You know, this feeling of rushing happens on so many levels. And it doesn't always happen when we're moving quickly. We could be rushing when we're moving very slowly. It's when we're caught in anticipation of something. And I've noticed this very clearly on retreats. You know, I might be doing walking meditation and quite settle back. and just feeling the sensations of each movement, of each step, and then the lunch bell rings, and I might be walking just as slowly, but somehow the energy system has changed, and I can feel uh, (coughs) that, that toppling forward into the lunch line. So we want to be sensitive just to these subtle shifts, these subtle movements. Are we in balance? Are we settled back? Are we at ease? Or are we toppling forward in some way? Every time you become aware you know, that we're being pulled forward, stop for a moment. Let that be a signal to you. That's like biofeedback. The feeling of rushing is a good signal take it as information that we're no longer settled back in the moment. And so if we recognize it, it becomes a mindfulness bell. It becomes a wake-up call, stop, settle back, come back to balance. What's quite amazing, if we pay attention to this process, you know, and we might feel that sense of rush in one way or another, and then we settle back, there's always an immediate feeling of relief, of ease. We're letting go of a certain kind of struggle, of tension. There's a very interesting connection between the perception of beauty and the Dharma. Why is it that almost everyone enjoys a beautiful sunset you know, or the morning light or the afternoon light filtered through the trees. In these moments of appreciating beauty, particularly natural beauty, our minds seem to settle down. They become quiet in that appreciation of beauty. We're less distracted. We're more fully present. And I think that's why this almost a universal appreciation you know, of those moments. Of course, the Buddha spoke of the dangers of attachment to these moments of beauty, but he also appreciated them. He and some of the great arhant monks and nuns, there are writings where there's a tremendous sense of appreciation for the support natural beauty can give to our practice. So I want to read just a few of the uh, the poems or verses that some of these great uh, monastics wrote, you know, appreciating that kind of environment. One wrote, "The earth is sprinkled, the wind blows, lightning flashes in the sky. My thoughts are quieted." My mind is well concentrated. And this is from the great Arhant Mahakasapa, who was the most ascetic of the monks. You know, just like Ananda was the lovable one, Mahakasapa was in a way the stern one, you know, very ascetic and but he expressed also his great appreciation of being in nature and the support it gives. To the practice. This, this was a polyverse actually translated by Andy Olensky, who's the senior scholar at the study center. Strung with garlands of flowering vines, this patch of earth delights the mind. The lovely calls of elephant sounds, these rocky crags do please me. The lovely ground is rained upon, the hills are full of holy seers, resounding with the cry of peacocks, these rocky crags do please me. Being clothed in flaxen flowers as the sky is covered in clouds, strewn with flocks of various birds, these rocky crags do please me. Not occupied by village folk, but visited by herds of deer, Strewn with flocks of various birds, these rocky crags do please me, and he then he ends with a true Mahakasapa verse. But there is not so much contentment for me in this fivefold music of the senses as in truly seeing Dhamma with a well concentrated mind. And it's just a little reminder of how beauty can be in the service of understanding, beauty can be in the service of peace. This slowing down, instilling the mind, and becoming more aware of just the ordinary experiences of our lives. These are not these are not kind of subtle esoteric states. It's just being open and more sensitive to the ordinary sights and sounds and smells and tastes and sensations that we experience during the day. This is the first step in creating our lives as art. So, after years of living with this sensitivity, Kandinsky, the artist, had a tremendous breakthrough. So, remember, he, he was describing his first experience when he was 13 years old, and then he went on, I, I think he went to law school in Russia, and he, he just led you know, a regular kind of life until he was called again to the art. He had a powerful breakthrough which has very important parallels in our development of insight. And this is what really struck me, what happened to him. He'd gone to an exhibition of French Impressionist paintings in Moscow. And he was standing in front of one of Monet's famous haystack paintings. And if you're not familiar, Monet painted a series, many, I think over 30. 30 different paintings of the same haystacks at different seasons, different times of day, and they're quite extraordinary. It's just how he reveals the kind of infinite changes of perception that happen when you look that carefully. So Kandinsky was standing very close to one of these haystack paintings and looking at it very intently. And then he lost all recognition of it as being a haystack, Now he was looking so closely that haystack disappeared and he only saw the thousands of brush strokes you know, of the painting. So it's as if the conventional understanding, the conventional reality of the world in that moment for him disappeared and he was perceiving his world in a whole new way. He said that, at first, this recognition, this new recognition, this new way of perception, was extremely painful and disorienting. So imagine, we have a background in the teachings, and so we kind of have some context for understanding this. But imagine somebody with no context for for understanding it. But just through the power of his own intense looking and concentration and sensitivity, all of a sudden, the whole conventional world disappears. And he's in a whole new realm, on a whole new level. And you can imagine how disorienting it was. But then he noticed, after that first disorientation, he also noticed how compelling it was. So this is what he wrote. Surrendered to the unexpected power of the palette, previously hidden from me, which exceeded all my dreams. The painting took on a fairy tale power of splendor. I love that. <laughs> you know, just the sense of seeing vast new possibilities open up when we can see through our attachment to conventional reality. So what does this mean for us as yogis, as meditators? With close, careful attention, the haystack disappears and all that remains is this world of color, no longer limited by preconception or by preconceived forms. In just the same way, when we look this carefully at what we call self, this mind and body, the conventional idea of self completely disappears, just like the haystack disappeared for Kandinsky. We go from the concept or the idea of self, which is so deeply ingrained, This is a very powerful conditioning for all of us. We go from this concept or idea of self to the direct experience of what's actually there. We might call it the palette of life. You know, the sights and sounds and smells and tastes and sensations and thoughts and ideas. So just as a simple experiment, and this is this is more radical for people less familiar with the practice. So for you, it'll just be a little reminder. Pay attention now to however your hands, whatever your hands are touching, You know, whether they're touching each other or resting on your knees or your lap. And if I were to ask the uninitiated, what do you feel? Most people would probably say, oh, I feel my hands or I feel my legs, but as you well know, we don't feel our hands, we don't feel our legs. There's no sensation called hand and there's no sensation called leg. What we're actually feeling is hardness or softness or warmth or coolness or pressure or tightness or vibration or tingling. That's the, that's the stuff of our experience. Leg or hand is a concept. So why is this important? You know, what's, what's the value in dropping down to this level? And it's essential for the unfolding of our practice and the unfolding of insight. The reason it's so important is that the concepts we use don't change. Hand today, hand tomorrow, leg today, leg tomorrow. And when we stay on the level of concept, we can be deluded into thinking that hand and leg are permanent because the concept stays the same. But when we drop down to the level of experience, of of just the changing sensations, the changing vibrations, the impermanence of our experience is so evident you know. we can see it so clearly, the sensations don't stay the same even for two moments. And so it allows us to understand in a much more fundamental way this great truth of impermanence. We can still talk of Haystack. And we can talk of self and of hand or leg. But through our practice, our understanding goes much deeper. Our understanding goes underneath this level of conventional language or conventional understanding. It goes beyond appearances. There's one Tibetan teacher who expressed this so well had a student who I think a little upset by this notion of self disappearing or the concept seeing self as a concept. And so the student asked him, is the self real? And the Tibetan teacher said, yes, it is real, but not really real. And I think that captures it. You know, on a relative level, on a conventional level, there is a self, and we relate that way one to another. And that's fine, there's no problem with that, as long as our understanding goes deeper than that. So we don't become attached or deceived by the concept. We use it, you know, in a conventional way, but the wisdom comes when we understand that it is just a concept, and that there's a reality underneath which is continually changing, which is unsatisfying in that regard, and which is selfless, which is impersonal, doesn't belong to anyone. It's precisely in this growing recognition Of emptiness of self. We could call it the absence, the increasing absence of self centeredness. There's a vibrant creative energy which begins to express itself, which is not limited by concepts or by self images. as we begin to let go of our attachment to the concept of self, of I, of mine, what happens is that we become much more spontaneously responsive to the world around us. And it's this responsiveness which is precisely the essence of compassion. In one way, we could think of compassion as being the responsiveness to the suffering in the world and this responsiveness flowers in the understanding of selflessness in this way our lives really do become a work of art you know we are quite literally creating our lives but there's an important question which arises here Once we drop down into this creative, fluid, energy flow, how do we know what choices to make? Which choices are really wise? Which choices are really skillful? The process itself is very creative, but what is it creating? Is it creating something of beauty? Something that's skillful and wholesome? Or not. You know, wars are created and suffering is created as well. So, how do we know? How do we choose what is truly skillful? And at this juncture, the Buddhist teachings are invaluable. Because, in one way, we could think that all of the Buddhist teachings are the answer to this question how do we choose what's skillful? How do we choose what's wise? How do we choose what leads to peace and freedom? And here it's where art and science come together in a path of practice. We could think of art as the creative aspect of life and science as the lawful aspect. The word Dharma, it's dharma in Sanskrit, Dhamma in Pali, one of the meanings of this word is the law. The Dharma is natural law, it's the law of things. It's the lawful nature of things. You now, And just as there are the physical laws of nature, of biology and chemistry and physics, there are also the laws of the mind, which describe very accurately what leads to suffering and what leads to happiness. and As in every science, in meditation too, there is a methodology for discovering these laws for ourselves. So it's not a question of just blind belief in what's said, and it's not random or chaotic. Our minds are lawful in just the same way that all the physical aspects of nature are lawful. And the practice is a way of discovering these laws of the mind for ourselves. We see for ourselves what brings about peace, what brings about suffering. In the Buddhist teachings, perhaps the most direct and concise description of how to go about this exploration is found in the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the discourse, as you know, on the four ways of establishing mindfulness. And it's really quite an amazing text. First, because Right in the beginning of it, the Buddha declares, a very bold statement, this is the direct path to awakening. So it's very unambiguous. He's saying, you want to wake up? You want to be free? You want to be liberated? This is the direct path. It's very straightforward in that way. And second, it's so amazing because in just a few short pages, the Buddha provides a map of the entire Dharma. It's all in there. And if we could just enter the doorway through any of the practices described, all of the Dharma would be revealed. Not only is there a map of the entire Dharma. But there are also very explicit and specific instructions on how to practice. So it has this very pragmatic rather than theoretical uh, aspect. So the Sutta, the Satipatthana Sutta, has a very interesting and precise order and pattern to it. First, there is a specific instruction for what it is that we should be observing, So it tells us what, what to observe. For example, the Four Foundations, we observe the body, we observe feelings, we observe the mind and mind states, we observe what are called those categories of experience, the hindrances and the factors of awakening and the sense bases. So all of this is laid out very systematically. And then each of these instructions, following each of these instructions of what we should observe, there is a refrain which tells us how and where to observe these particular objects. So this refrain happens 13 different times in the sutta. After each set of instructions, The Buddha repeats this refrain of how and where to practice it. It's extremely interesting to watch one's own reaction and response, especially when reading, or also in hearing, when we hear the same thing 13 different times. Does the mind glaze over? The eyes glaze over? (laughs) You know, the first time interested, second time interested, third time interested, but by the eighth time we're reading exactly the same words, or well, the ninth time or the tenth time. Oh, I heard this already. But we might have a different attitude towards this. We might think, oh, the Buddha said this 13 different times, maybe it's important. You know, Maybe we should really pay attention to what he's saying. I think the second is the wiser approach. So I'd like to briefly review this refrain because it is so important. and The beauty and opportunity and power of a retreat is that we can actually put these teachings into practice, so it's not just Buddhist philosophy or theory. We take the words. And we see, we explore, we investigate for ourselves, well, what do these words mean in my own experience? And that's the power of it. If we don't do that, it remains just on the level of you know, perhaps interesting ideas. But we have to take the words in and then apply them and say, OK, how can I do this in my meditation, in my practice? So the first, there, there are just three three basic teachings in the refrain. The first is, the Buddha says, to observe whatever's arising internally, externally, and both. So this is pretty interesting. This is an important understanding because it highlights that the meditation in our practice is not only about what's happening internally about what's happening inside. It's also about what's happening externally. And we need to pay attention to that, You know, of what it is that's all around us. And then at certain times, the boundary between internal and external disappears altogether. So we just explore this whole dimension. So let's, we'll just take the example of the body but it can be applied to all the other uh, foundations of mindfulness as well. Okay, As we're aware of the body internally, that's I think, pretty clear. We can be aware of the breath. We can be aware of bodily sensations. We can be aware of different movements and activities. Being mindful of the body externally means we are aware and mindful when we notice these same things in other people's bodies. So here mindfulness means noticing this in other people's bodies without judgment, without evaluation. So a few examples of how this might work and how helpful it would be for our own practice. Suppose you're sitting in the hall and it's nice and quiet. And then the person next to you starts to breathe loudly. So what's the first reaction, almost universally? Why is this person bothering me? You know, why are they disturbing my meditation? Don't they know they're supposed to breathe quietly? But what if we remembered at that time, oh, I can be mindful of the body, of the breath externally, that means being mindful of someone else's breath. So we're sitting, if we remember this, and remember it's equal, the Buddha is saying be mindful internally, externally, and both. So if we simply make the external breath the object of our meditation, it's equal to the awareness of our own breath. And so the mind is relaxed at a disease, there's no struggle, there's no selfing. Another situation. And there are many, there are thousands of examples of where this would be helpful. But suppose you're kind of moving about, and then you notice other people moving either very carefully and mindfully or very carelessly. You know, and sloppily, and not mindful at all. If we're not mindful of the body externally, right, if we're not mindful or we're in that way, that is, of the bodily movements of others, in seeing someone moving really carefully and slowly, very precisely and gracefully, we might think oh, they're really good yogis. I'm so bad, you know. We get involved in a whole comparing and judging and self judging. Or if we see somebody moving about rather carelessly, you know, and just you can tell they're not being mindful at all, and we're not mindful externally, so we might have the reaction. Oh, they're terrible yogas, I'm pretty good. And we just get caught basically in the defilement of conceit, you know, which is this comparing mind. Conversely, if we are mindful externally, we just see, we just notice. Oh, there's there's a body moving mindfully, there's a body moving carelessly. We're mindful and our own minds stay at ease, stay at peace, non-reactive. Not only that, in the situation of being with others who are very mindful, if we're mindful of their mindfulness, it actually makes us more aware and more concentrated. And I know that you've had this experience. We can get very concentrated watching the mindful movements of others I had this experience in, in different situations. I don't know whether any of you have kind of participated in the Japanese tea ceremony, you know, but it's, it's really a beautiful. It's a very formalized preparation and serving of tea. And every movement, every movement is completely precise and done with great care. So if you're sitting there and watching the tea master you know, do this, By the end of that tea ceremony, our own minds are extremely still and quiet and concentrated. Because we're in a situation where being mindfully externally is part of the whole experience. So by frequently repeating this instruction, be mindful internally, externally, and both, The Buddha is really reminding us to pay attention in all circumstances. It's not just about when we're focused inward. It's about when our attention is also engaged outwardly. So I'll repeat this now 13 different times. (laughs) Just imagine that I do. (laughs) Let it in. This is an important instruction. Be mindful internally, be mindful externally, be mindful both, whether it's the body. You can do the same thing with emotion, you know, suppose we could be mindful of anger internally or happiness. Okay, we know what it means in meditation to be mindful of these emotions within ourselves, but if we see somebody else, it's you know, it can be fairly obvious in different situations when someone is angry or happy or sad or whatever. The practice is to be mindful of those emotions externally you know, so we don't get caught up in a reactivity, but we're just aware, we're, we're, aware of, we're as aware of the emotion in the other as we are of emotion in ourselves. That's a very different way of being in the world. And it makes our practice very complete, very whole. So the next instruction in the refrain is to be mindful of the nature of arising, of passing away, and of both arising and passing away, of any object that appears in our experience. So this turns our mind not only to what it is that's happening but also to the great truth of change. Because we're focusing our attention on the fact that whatever appears, we're focusing our attention on the arising, the passing away, both the arising and the passing away. When we were practicing with Saira Upandita, And going in for interviews to report our experience, it was a very he had he had a quite formalized way of reporting, where we would have to describe in some detail some segment of our sitting, of our walking. So we would have to say, you know, go in and report experience the rising movement of the abdomen in the breath, and I felt this, this, and this. I felt tension, I felt pressure, I felt whatever. In the falling, I felt this, this, and this. A sensation arose. I felt it as tightness. You know, I noted it. It got stronger, it got weaker, it disappeared. Right? And so we would, need to, we would need to pay careful enough attention in our practice to be able to say, this arose and this is what happened to it. This arose and this is what happened to it. So you might just keep that in mind, that emphasis on recognizing not only what it is that's happening, but what happens to that object as you're aware of it. Does it get stronger? Does it get weaker? Does it change? Does it disappear? Does it disappear quickly? Does it disappear slowly? And this focus on what it is that happens to each object begins to take us from the content of what's going on to the process of what's going on. And this is what deepens our understanding. It refines our perception of change. This instruction of the Buddhas to see the changing nature of experience, to pay attention to the arising, the passing, and both the arising and passing, is central, it's of the utmost importance for our practice. Lady Sayadaw, who was one of the great Burmese masters around the turn of the, between, between the end of the 1800s and the beginning of the 1900s, right, right around then. Uh, I was going to say the turn of the century, but then I got confused, which century? <laughs> but that's the century. He was a great scholar. He, he was a tremendous scholar of the Buddhist texts and a great meditation master. So he was really speaking from his experience. And there are some uh, books of his teachings, which is just a wealth of Dharma. This is what he said, not seeing arising and passing away is ignorance. While seeing all phenomena as impermanent is the doorway to all the stages of insight and awakening. That's pretty not seeing arising passing away is ignorance. Seeing all phenomena as impermanent is the doorway to all the stages of insight and awakening. So when the Buddha repeated this thirteen different times with respect to every kind of object that arises. See the arising, the passing away, both. He was giving importance to this. So in your practice, keep this in mind. Keep this instruction you know, as the context for how you're practicing. Now, sometimes we can see this impermanence on a moment-to-moment level. Where we really see it with each arising object. But it's also possible to contemplate and reflect on it in a somewhat more general way, which I have found very helpful in terms of integrating this understanding in life. You know, periodically, we might ask ourselves the question where is our experience? of half an hour ago? It's gone. Where is our experience of 10 minutes ago? It's gone. This is is not some subtle esoteric insight. It's just completely obvious when we pay attention to it. But it's so ordinary that we overlook it. We don't bother paying attention to it. So the Buddha is saying, this is something important. really see the arising and passing, whether on the moment-to-moment level or on a more general level. So this understanding of impermanence becomes more and more fully integrated in our lives and in our experience. So we start living it rather than just knowing it intellectually. It really can become the doorway to freedom. So we contemplate everything that's arising internally, externally, and both. We contemplate the arising and passing away and both. So the last instruction in the refrain also has particular importance for how we practice. So this is particularly with regard to the first foundation of the body, but it applies to all the others as well. This is what it says in the refrain. Mindfulness that there is a body is established in oneself to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. Say it again. Mindfulness that there is a body is established in oneself to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and continuous mindfulness. And it's the phrase, to the extent necessary, which I found very uh, compelling. It suggests to us just how much effort is needed. And it's only that much necessary for bare knowing. So we're with the breath, you know, or with the sensations of movement to remind oneself, and even to use this phrase, there is a body. That's enough effort. We don't need more effort than that. There is a body. And it's amazing. I I was experimenting with this on my last retreat because I was looking at this refrain and trying to experiment and practice with it. I would be walking, doing walking meditation, and sometimes at a little faster speed, sometimes a little slower, but then I would just say, there is a body. Please try it, (laughs) because it was quite amazing what happened. It's like the mind just dropped back into openness, because so often in our practice, we're exerting more effort than is necessary for simply bare knowing. Right? And that obscures things. So if we just remind ourselves that's all that's needed. There is a body. And everything for those moments becomes completely easeful. And it's as if we're living in the experience of the emptiness of it all. Again, this is something you have, to, you have to experiment with for yourself and, and apply it in your own practice and see, see the effect of it. There was one other little piece in that. Mindfulness that there is a body is established in oneself to the extent necessary for bare knowing and continuous mindfulness. So it takes more than just one moment of there is a body. Oh, that feels good. Another letting go. It takes repeated. You know, We need to repeatedly remind ourselves in that way so that slowly the mindfulness does become continuous or more continuous. You know, and that becomes its power. There's a very clear instruction about this by one of the great Tibetan Dzogchen masters. His name is Trangu Rinpoche. I just it's just a short description, but it captures this last instruction. The sutra teachings describe two shortcomings called lack of attention and being over-attentive. In the former, one does not pay attention to the training and becomes lost in daydreaming. Being over-attentive means to be preoccupied with keeping hold of the meditation to such an extent that it disturbs the state of samadhi, of concentration. The hectic attempt to be so present, so mindful, turns into into a distraction all in itself. Of course one should have presence of mind, but it should be allowed to progress in a spacious way not in a constrictive or rigid manner. The more open the sense of being mindful is, the more at ease it is, the more relaxed we are. And this relaxed quality is very important. So keep that in mind as you do the practice. Not lack of attention, not being over attentive. Mindful just to the extent necessary. There is a body you know, for clear knowing and continuous mindfulness. Okay, so the Buddha concludes the refrain, noticing things internally, externally, in both being with the arising, passing away and both, and being mindful just to the extent necessary for clear knowing, he concludes this refrain, which he repeats so many times, with an inspiring reminder of the benefits and fruits of practicing in this way. So he concludes the refrain by saying, and one abides independent not clinging to anything in the world." And I love that line. It just feels, it's so expressive to me of the freedom that this practice is all about. And one abides independent, not clinging to anything in this world. It's a reminder that all the methods, all the techniques that we use, all the words that we use are all in the service of non-clinging. And that is the essence of the liberated mind. So let's sit for just a few moments. the sharing of blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.